And today I want us to look at uh, the subject, but from a different perspective, because it's really easy to imitate all of those things. It would be easy for me to imitate faith, for example. I could do what what some have. We had a fellow up in Cincinnati years ago that decided he would demonstrate his faith and walk on water, but he drowned. So, <laughs> you know... Uh, you can fake it, but it doesn't work. And, and you can fake love, you can fake hope, and all of those things. So, so today I want us to think about the question, what is a Christian? What is a Christian? And, and it's so very important that we understand, and to understand, we've got to get the information from the Bible. Several years ago, I... I saw the results of a survey. This is one of those kind of a man-on-the-street thing, you know, where they stop people and ask folks different questions. And so the question of the day was, is how do you get to heaven? And as you might expect, you get all kinds of different answers, and uh, and most of them the kind that you normally think about. Well, somebody said... Uh, you, you got to keep the golden rule. Somebody else said you got to keep the Ten Commandments. Somebody else said you, know, you got to be a good neighbor. And so the list went on and on and on as to all of the different ideas about heaven. And uh, finally it got down to, you know, one fellow said, uh, up the golden stairs. Well, I, you know, whatever that means. And the next person, the one I've never forgotten, was... I don't know, ask Art Linkletter. So I don't know what Art Linkletter had to do with the plan of salvation, but that was their response. And so it's easy for people to get confused. And a lot of times we, like the little boy that just got back from summer camp, and, uh, boy, it was his first time at summer camp, and he was all excited about it, and he got home and so his mother asked him if most of the kids there were Christians. Well, it caught the little fellow a bit off guard, didn't know how to answer. He hum-hawed around for a little bit, and he said, yeah. He, he said, I think, I think a lot of them were Christians, but I think most of them were Cajuns. And uh, so, you know, some people don't know the difference between a, between a Christian and a Cajun. So, you know... What, what can you say to that? Because there's just so much confusion. When we think about God's people, those that follow the Lord Jesus Christ, we need to understand that they went by several different names. For example, they're called disciples. That means a learner or an apprentice. It's someone who who takes what they learn and put it into practice. And so it's common to see God's people referred to as disciples. It's common to see them referred to as brethren. That speaks about the relationship we have one with another. Another word that's used to describe God's people is the word believers because it shows that we have placed our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Another word is the word saints. That means those that are the separated ones. They're the ones that have been set apart. And listen, if you're a child of God, you are one of the saints. You don't need some religious organization to make you a saint. You're already a saint if you're a child of God. And so there are several different words, but today 
Today, I want to look at the word Christian itself. That word is found only three times in the Bible. But whenever we're talking about what is a Christian, then we need to look and see what the Bible says about Christians. And we find three instances where the word is used. The first time it was used was in Antioch. And we're going to look at that here in just a little while. But that was the common trade center of the east, the west, the north, and the south. Uh, You know, the Romans ruled over it, but the Greeks directed the commerce. The Jewish synagogue stood there among all of the heathen temples. And and so this this was the place of that day. In fact, it was called the Queen City. And whatever happened there soon became known around the world because the word spread out from there. And so this is where they were first called Christians. Now, that was the location. But as to who used this word or who coined this phrase, you know, that might be up for for debate. It certainly was not, uh, at least in my mind, it, it was not chosen by the Jews. The, the Jews would have not have used a word associated with the Messiah. Now remember, they look forward to the coming of the Messiah. And so when you speak about the Messiah, every Jew would admit to the fact that God was going to send the, the Messiah. So they are not going to use a word, Christ, meaning the anointed one, the Messiah. And they're not going to use a word to identify them with the person that they revere so greatly. And so we can't imagine them doing that. Nor can we imagine these sincere, humble believers themselves taking that name unto unto themselves. As we read about the qualities of those early Christians, it's very evident that they, you know, they were just the spirit of humility that that they possessed, it was not a name that they would have chosen for themselves to go around boasting, you know, that we are Christians. So that leaves us with the other option, which most people believe, and that is that this name was given by the heathen as a term of derision. It was a term of mockery, if you please. It was given by their enemies, and uh, and there in Antioch, if you read about the city itself, you'll learn that they had a reputation for giving different people, different groups of people, nicknames. And so they give this name out of contempt for Christians. So it's not something that we took upon ourselves that we might be braggadocious, but it's something that our enemies gave to us. So... This morning I want you, as we think about what is a Christian, to look at the three instances where the Bible uses that word. Turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 26, Acts 26 and verse number 28. Acts 26, verse 28, there's a phrase here that is very familiar to all of you. Remember, this is where Paul is standing before Agrippa, and he said, Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. 
This is the verse that is the basis for the song, Almost Persuaded. And it's the heartbreaking account of King Agrippa's rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's almost persuaded, but he's altogether lost. And let me tell you, there couldn't be anything sadder than that. Keep in mind that here is a man who has all of the information that he needs to become a child of God. Paul has preached unto him the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Keep in mind he has the truth. Keep in mind that he heard the message from Paul. How would you like to hear Paul preach? I mean, I'll tell you what, if Paul was here, I'd sit down. I'd, I'd, I, we'd all rather hear Paul preach than me preach any day of the week. And so I'd certainly give place to Paul. Well, here's a man that had the privilege of hearing the great Apostle Paul preach. And what he preached was the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here it says, I am almost persuaded. When we think about being a Christian, the first thing I want you to remember is this. A Christian is identified with a persuasion and he makes a choice. He is identified with a persuasion and he makes a choice. To become a Christian, we have to make a choice. The Bible tells us that we have to repent. That word repent has to do with changing your mind. You have to change your mind about self, about sin, about the Savior. You have to change your mind and believe. You'll remember whenever the Philippian jailer asked Paul and Silas, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? That's in Acts chapter 17. And you'll notice this was the perfect occasion to clear up this matter altogether. And notice they did not say, you've got to join the church. They didn't say, you've got to be a good neighbor. They didn't say, you've got to be baptized. They didn't even say, up the golden stairs or ask Art Linkletter. They didn't say any of those things. What did they say? Believe. You see, there must be a choice, and that choice is to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. None of us become a Christian by our good works, by our human efforts, by our generous spirit, or charming personality, or anything else. Christianity is not based on what you do, but rather it's based upon what God has done for you. And that's what Paul was sharing with King Agrippa The fact that Christ had died for him. And sadly, King Agrippa says, Almost, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. I can't imagine anything more sad than that. To think about being almost persuaded right on the verge of eternal life, right there on the verge of having all of your sins forgiven, And then to walk away. I mean, you couldn't make a worse decision than that. So a Christian is identified with the persuasion and he makes a choice. But now let's turn back to Acts chapter number 11. Acts 11 and verse number 26. This takes us back to the first mention of the word Christian at Antioch. Verse 26 And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people, and the disciples 
were called Christians first in Antioch. Not only is a Christian someone identified with the persuasion who makes a choice, he is identified with a person and he experiences a change. These believers had spent, it says, about a year there in Antioch. In other words, all of this time had passed, and all of this time the people there in Antioch are observing them. Whether you believe it or not, the world is watching you. When you claim to be a child of God, the world might disbelieve what you believe. They might mock you, whatever, but they're watching you. And I know that because their most common excuse is what? Well, there's too many hypocrites in the church. I don't want anything to do with you. See, that tells us that they're watching. And, and, and listen, they're going to sit in judgment of Christ based on what they see in us. And what they should see is a change that has taken place in our Life, And that's what's going on here. They see these people are, are, are identified with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, listen, it might be out of mockery that they coined this phrase. You know, they might be ridiculing them, which they, which they certainly were. But the fact is, they are identifying them with Christ, with everything that Christ claimed to be with everything they proclaimed Him to be. And they're identifying Him with that. And let me tell you, no one is Christ-like by nature. No one. There has to be a change. Now listen, we're not saved because of any changes that we make. Somebody says, well, you know, preacher, I, I, you know, I know you're probably right, and I don't want to die and go to hell. I want to go to heaven. Grandma's there, and so I certainly want to go to heaven. I want to have my sins forgiven and all of that, you know. And so they might agree with, with all of those things, but then in the back of their mind they keep thinking, yeah, but, you know, if I'm going to become a Christian, you know, I've got to give this up and that up and the other up. And the fact of the matter is you don't have to give up anything. You don't have to make any changes at all in order to become a child of God because you're not the one that's making the changes that counts. It's the Lord Jesus Christ that changes us. But make no mistake about it, whenever we are saved, there are going to be some changes. Now, some of those changes are visible and some of them are invisible. There are changes that are invisible, such as our standing before God. Others can't see that, right? Our justification, the fact that He has declared us free from all sin. Even though we know that we're not sinless, He treats us as though we were simply because instead of judging us on the basis of what we've done, He looks at the righteousness of Christ. Amen? And as a result of that, God is able to declare us sinless because Christ is sinless. And so those are changes in our life that the world cannot see. The hope of heaven that we have in our heart, the world doesn't see that. They don't know anything about the joy that's unspeakable and full of glory. They don't see that. All of those things are invisible, but there are visible things in our life 
that others can see. I'm talking about those things that shape and form our character. When Paul was writing to the Corinthians, he says, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. So this, listen, this is, this is something that begins to change. It's visible, but understand, it's progressive. It's something that is going on because we do not just instantly change into the total sinless likeness of Christ. We're not there yet. Regardless of who you are or how long you've been saved, you've still got a long ways to go to ever be exactly like Jesus Christ. Now, that'll happen someday. That's at the time of our glorification. But right now, we're going through a process that the Bible calls sanctification, where the Lord is working in us, and He is changing us. So when we talk about being changed as a result of trusting Christ as our Savior, we're not talking so much about changes that we make in and of ourselves We're talking about the changes that the Holy Spirit makes in our life. Because a lot of those changes we could never make on our own. I mean, if God had just said, look, I'm going to save you, I'm going to forgive you of all of your sins, I'm going to write your name down in the Lamb's Book of Life, I'm going to reserve for you a place in heaven, and that's it. Now, buddy, you're on your own. I'd still be on a bar stool somewhere. That's exactly where I would be because I did not have it in and of myself the power to give up alcohol. I didn't have that ability. But as I kept my focus on the Lord Jesus Christ and fed my soul on the Word of God, the Spirit of God began to make changes in my life. I'm far from perfect today, but thank God I'm not the man that I used to be. So when you claim to be a Christian, understand That identifies you with a persuasion and you've made a choice. That choice is to receive Christ as your Savior. Not only, not only is there a choice that you make, but there is a change that you experience. Uh, You know, the sad thing is that so many people today are depending upon their change to get them to heaven when in reality that's never good enough. Because the only thing you can change is your belief by placing your trust in Christ. Now turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter chapter number 4. There's so many things that, that could be said that are written in this chapter. But I want you to notice just one verse. Verse number 16 where again we find the word Christian. The Christian is identified with the persuasion. He makes a choice. He is identified with a person. That person is Christ, and he experiences a change. But here, I want you to notice that the Christian is identified with persecution, and he accepts the challenge. It says, Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. We live in a day where so many are deceived and under the impression that salvation is a cure-all. In other words, if I just receive Christ as my Savior, all of my problems are going to melt away. 
You know, if God saves me, then God's going to heal me of all of my diseases. If God saves me, God is going to, in some way or another, make me so wealthy I'll be able to pay all of my bills. I'll be able to live in luxury. And by the way, right now, all across our nation, there are certain preachers that are preaching that nonsense. And none of it comes out of the Bible, by the way. This idea that salvation is a cure-all and all you've got to do is to get saved and all your problems are going to melt away. That's absolutely contrary to what Jesus taught his followers. They, he said to them that they're going to be hated, they're going to be despised. He said they're going to suffer all kinds of different hardships. He warned them, if you're going to follow me, the foxes have hoes and the birds of the air, they have their nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. In other words, if you're going to follow me, you're going to be subjected to a great many difficulties. And he made this statement. He said, if you're going to be my disciple, you've got to be willing to forsake all that you have to follow me. In Luke chapter 14, he tells us that we've got to love him more than our mother or our father, more than our spouse or our children. We have to love him above everything else. So the greatest, the greatest need for anyone is to be reconciled to God because nothing else matters until that happens. Your greatest need, you, you know, somebody said, well, my, my greatest need is to be cured of my heart disease or my cancer. My greatest need is for my marriage to be put back together. Listen, if you're not a Christian, your greatest need is to be reconciled to the Lord. Amen? Because until that happens, nothing else really matters. And after that happens, the Lord does not exempt you from troubles and trials, but rather enables you to endure them. Because we're going to have problems like everyone else. And, and, and a life of pleasure and ease is not the most important thing. Being holy is more important than being happy. Somebody says, well, you know, I, uh, I, I, I'd like to be a Christian, but those Christians are just miserable. No, we're not. You just don't know anything about us. We're not miserable at all. The happiest people on the face of the earth is a child of God in the will of God. And you're never, ever going to be truly happy until you are holy. And by holy, I do not mean that you are perfect. I simply mean that God is working in your life and changing your life and conforming you more and more and more like to the Lord Jesus Christ. So instead of us seeking to gratify ourselves, our main concern is for the glory of God. Isn't that what he says? Notice, let him glorify God on this behalf. Now remember, he's talking about those who suffer, but they don't just suffer, they suffer as Christians. So many times I've talked about the fact that God allows his children to be subjected to stuff like that. Now, you know, normally we think about we've got to protect our children from absolutely everything. We don't want the poor little things to, you know, suffer hardship. We don't want to have to work and sweat and, and be subjected to any kind of difficulty. So we've got to be right there and protect them. And what we do is end up spoiling them and ruining them instead of letting them grow up. 
God has more sense than we do, and God knows that we never become the kind of people that we need to be unless He permits us to go through the hardships and the difficulties that help to shape and form and fashion our lives into the people that we ought to be. Why would God do that? Why would God allow His own dear children to suffer so much? Because what we fail to understand is that we are here on a mission. We are not here on earth on a vacation. That's not our purpose in being. We are here on a mission, and that mission is for us to do everything we can to take as many as we can to heaven with us. And whenever we, when we make an effort to do that, it's going to subject us to persecution. Others are going to hate us. Others are going to make life more difficult for us. So it's going to be difficult, but listen, it's not only difficult, it also is a door that opens up opportunities for us. I said a while ago, the world is watching your neighbor, your co-worker, your classmate, those people that know you when you profess to be a Christian, they're watching what you do all of the time, and it makes a difference in their life, or it certainly will eventually. And so whenever the troubles and trials come, they're watching to see how you're going to react to that. Some of us don't do so well sometimes, do we? You know, we're really... We're really good, uh, cheerful, dedicated Christians when everything is going right. But all of a sudden, when everything is going wrong, I mean, we, we, we just cave into the pressure. And all of a sudden, you know, we've been talking about the greatness of our faith and the greatness of our love and the greatness of our hope in God. And then we turn around and because of our troubles and trials, we act like God is dead or mighty sick or unconcerned. And the world's watching that. And we need to understand that in these troubles and trials, it gives us an opportunity to express our faith in the living God and to show the world the difference that He makes in a person's life. Why? Because we, we are being changed day by day. When we think about God and His attributes we think about how God relates to us, and we all know that He is loving, He is wise, He is powerful, He is kind. We know that. But the world is yet to figure that out. They think of God maybe in the context that He is their Creator. They think about Him perhaps as being their judge, but they don't think about Him being an ever-loving, kind, heavenly Father and they're watching us. And it's when they see our response to the troubles and trials of life, and we have that opportunity that we're able to show them the difference that He makes, all of a sudden they begin to realize that we have exactly what it is that they need. They didn't know that before because they figured that you would respond to hardships exactly like they do. Now they see you totally different than they are. And the result of that is, is maybe they've got what I need. So what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, you are identified with the persuasion and you have to make a choice. 
Not only that, but you're identified with a person that is Christ, and you experience a change. They call them Christians there at Antioch. And then you're identified with persecution, problems, troubles, trials, and you're willing to accept that challenge. And that's why he says, if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. We need not be embarrassed, as it were, because of uh, what seems to the world to be a failure on our part or God's part. We can hold our head up high and know that whatever it is that we're going through, that God has designed it for our good. Now, when we consider all those three things that I've mentioned, so three instances where the word Christian is used, then it brings us down to to how we are affected by that. And in those three things, we are affected naturally in three ways. Number one, there is contentment that we never had before. That contentment comes as a result of having made that choice. We're identified with the persuasion, just like King Agrippa. He said, I'm almost persuaded. And there was a time in your life that you were almost persuaded and you made a choice that choice to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And now, as a result of that, you have contentment. By that, I mean you have satisfaction that you never had before. You have that blessed assurance that we sang about earlier. You have a peace that passeth all understanding. I, I knew nothing about what it was to, to be really satisfied until after I was saved. Because regardless of what I got or what I did, nothing, nothing satisfied the longing in my soul. And you'll never be satisfied without Christ. So there is contentment. Not only, not only that, but secondly, our character is affected as a result of the changes that God makes in our life. You see, making a change, doing something different is one thing, but having, developing a character that is Christ-like is something else. And so as God works making these changes in our life, all of a sudden our character, I'm not talking about our reputation now. Reputation is what people think you are. Character is what you really are. And our character is formed as a result of the choices that we make in life and the changes that God brings into our life as a result of that. So our character is different. We relate to one another better. They think more highly of us. We love them unconditionally now, whereas before we didn't. And all of a sudden, we begin loving people like Christ loved us. Even though they're unlovely, we love them because Christ loved us in that while we were yet sinners, He died for us. And then thirdly, there is, there is the courage, the courage that this gives us as we face the troubles and trials of life. I don't know anybody that doesn't need courage whenever it comes to troubles and trials. This courage comes as a result of us knowing that God has a purpose and a plan, and in everything that happens to us, it's for a purpose. I, I have no idea why all of these things happen with Brother Ron. 
I'll never be able to figure it out. I, I could sit down day and night and wring my hands and I could just do everything within my power trying to understand why God let that happen to him, you know. But I know God had a reason for it. And every one of us can think of something in our life or we can think of some loved one that has gone through some great difficulty and we wonder why. Listen, you don't need to know the reason why. You just need to know there is a reason. That's exactly what Paul was saying in Romans 8.28. For he says, we know all things work together for good to those who love the Lord or the called according to his purpose. That all things, that's the good and the bad. That everything is working and it's working together. The good and the bad intermingle like ingredients in a cake. Most of, most of us, you know, enjoy a, a good cake. But I don't know anybody just sits around eating flour or drinking vanilla or eating raw eggs or, you know, stuff like that. Whenever you put all the ingredients together and you subject it to heat, all of a sudden you've got something that's not only beautiful but something that, that is delicious. And God is able to take the worst things that happen to you and make something beautiful out of them. And all of a sudden, contrary to the way we felt, now we have the courage to go through whatever it is that we're facing. All of us have envisioned certain things in our life and we thought to ourselves, I'll never get through this. Or we imagine things that, you know, that if this or that happened, I, I, I just, I, I don't, I just don't think I could make it. And yet whenever we go to the Word of God and we discover that as the Lord said to Paul, my grace is sufficient. You see, you can have courage to face the unknown because you know that God knows and He is in control and He's going to, he's going to do everything right. We might not understand it. We might not even appreciate it, but we know that he never makes a mistake. So how is it with you this morning? Now we ought to know what a Christian is. Many years ago, in fact, it was in 1871, a songwriter of the name of P.P. Bliss was in the congregation on a certain day when a preacher preached from this very text there about King Agrippa. And after the message, which ended with these words, the preacher said, He who is almost persuaded is almost saved, and to be almost saved is to be entirely lost. And P.P. Bliss went home and sat down and he wrote the hymn, Almost persuaded now to believe. What about you? Maybe someone's here this morning and you're right there on the verge of wholeheartedly being persuaded to make that choice to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Please don't put it off. Don't wait until it's too late. And others that have already made that choice this morning, 
you can rejoice in all of the good things that God has done and what He's promised. Now let God use you to help persuade others of His saving grace. Let's all stand together. Our Father, this morning, how we thank You for for the Lord Jesus Christ, for what He did. How we thank You for the difference that He makes in our life. How we thank You for the love that He demonstrated to us. And how we thank You for the hope that He imparts and the changes that He makes. And I just pray this morning that You'll speak to hearts, and especially of those that are here today that have never received Christ as their Savior. God, help them to not delay. Help them to not wait another day, but even now, that they might put their trust in Christ and come to know the joy that only He can provide. For we ask it in His dear name.